Good evening, and welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I am your humble host and caretaker, Leopold. Ah, the carnival, a place of carefree delights and fantastic thrills. What better way to spend a summer's evening than taking in the delightful midway rides, the exciting games of chance, and the unique treats provided by the carnival. It's probably best not to think about how often bolts fall out of the rides, or how the games are run by strangers with sketchy, mysterious backgrounds. And it's certainly best not to think about the ingredients of the hot dogs they sell. The author of tonight's exhibit is Phil Margulies, who writes science fiction and fantasy and dabbles in horror. His short fiction has appeared in Brave New Girls, the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and horror anthology, Perihelion SF, Abyss and Apex, and other publications. He's on Twitter at Filmagolis, nearly as often as he is at home outside Washington, D.C., with his wife, daughter, and skittish dogs. The Prince in the Darkness by Phil Margulies The October wind off Lake George ate right through the moth-eaten collar of his overcoat, even as James Custis held it stiff against his neck. Twilight lit the hills across the lake the same burnished red as his face. His eyes stung from the cold. He wiped them dry as the breeze picked up, the taut lines holding the big top groaning behind him. Or was that the dead ape inside, moaning in its cage? The sound of a motor cut through the rustle of leaves on the far side of his encampment. Custis wavered between a smile and a frown. Little traffic, by foot or by car, had rolled down East Shore Drive since the elites returned to the city at summer's end. When he and Rosie, with Henry and the ape, came up from New York City in March of 1934, they'd had three circus tents, enough cash to weather two slow seasons, and a brand new Ford and trailer for the bedecked travel cage. It was autumn now, three years later, and Custis no longer roomed at the fashionable Fort William Henry Hotel. The few news reports he got even signaled a possible return toward the Depression. What did he have left? No Rosie. No Henry. Just a pair of tattered tents, a rusting trailer, the travel cage, and the Prince in the Darkness. A shiny black Plymouth rumbled around the last curve, a cape of dust billowing. Custis half expected to see Henry directing the driver across the field scored with the memories of other autos, but no, of course not. Henry had been gone for weeks already when Rosie left two months ago. The car sputtered forward, stopping just beyond the travel trailer on the far side of the big top. The doors opened, and Custis heard a voice, faint and deep. The wind answered with a guttural sound, or... Was that the ape again? 
Wetness blurred his vision again as he saw the memory of Rosie lugging her bags toward town, calling back, We ain't never should have left the Big Apple. The marks in the city were sapped. Custis had griped silently at the time. The words were accurate, he acknowledged now, but not true as a reason. A car door slammed. Moments later, a solitary man appeared around the tent so quietly Custis startled as he approached. Tall, with a cheerless face built of sharp angles, the man wore an unbuttoned overcoat and a top hat that went out of style in the last century. One black-gloved hand pinched a sheet of paper the breeze sought to steal. Mr. Curtis. The man's accented voice barely made it through the wind. Custis, like George Washington's stepkids. The man returned an odd frown as if he had only a faint idea of who George Washington was and no idea he had stepchildren. The man's eyes narrowed. He held out the sheet. Custis grabbed hold to stop it from fluttering. We have come about this. Custis glanced past the man but saw no one else. The wind roared around his head, acting like earmuffs. He turned back to the paper. One of the advertisement posters Henry grudgingly nailed throughout the town of Caldwell. Gaudy colors, declaring, Most amazing, most intriguing curiosity of the modern world. With, You've seen the king on the screen. Now, meet the prince in person. Beneath. Custis relaxed and put on his showman's face. Yes, sir, you've come to the right place. You will behold shortly the most amazing creature you have ever seen. A creature you could scarcely imagine existed even in the deepest dark of Africa whence he was born. Yes, sir, in just a few moments you will lay your very eyes upon the tenth wonder of the world. He never eats. He never sleeps. He is the eternal watcher. He is history. Yes? Yes, sir, he is... What? He is history, yes? Well, he is... It was a modern ape. Big guy. Biggest ape. Well, biggest that wasn't in a movie. Custis frowned. That wasn't what he meant to say at all. He was more out of practice than he'd thought. The ape was his first gig in the business. But he'd loved sideshows since he was a boy and wanted to own one ever since. I am sorry, Mr. Custis. My English is not good. Perhaps we begin again. What is his history, this modern ape? That's part of the show, Mr. I am Mr. George Akros from New York City, but before that from Bucharest. You don't sound like a Czech. Bucharest is in Romania. Ah, of course, of course, Custis said, waving off any response. Well, Mr. Akros, you have found your way to the most amazing, most intriguing curiosity of the modern world. That is why my brother recommended we have come to you. Custis glanced past Akros, but still saw no one else. Your brother... My brother, because he died last time, he is reticent and wary. My condolences. Akros's response was a look of confusion. My brother is not dead long when he dies. 
died recently, Custis corrected quietly. Clearly the English language was a struggle for a foreigner like Akros. Custis shook off Rosie's voice from the back of his head. Give him a break, his English is not so good, just like Henry's ain't. Custis frowned in lieu of a retort. Henry wasn't Czech or Romanian. He was half African Negro, half Frenchman. Custis tried his impresario smile. Well, you are about to see this, this thing, this fabulous, with your very eyes. He winced. When had he become a bumbling caricature of a showman? He held back a sigh, if only to stop his breathing from turning on him too. Rosie had urged them to leave the summer before, but blinded by his own smarts, Custis declared they'd stay, and once spring came, the marks would return. He'd even sold the Ford then, as if stranding them would prove his savvy. The crowds, once flush with curiosity and cash, grew sparse after the novelty died off, but they stayed. Well, he had. Custis felt lashed to the southern end of Lake George like one of the big top tent stakes, unable to pull up and leave. Some days he wanted to run away, abandon the ape, but he couldn't bring himself to do it, no matter how much grief the creature had brought him. The ape was the only companion he had left, even if all it ever did of its own accord was moan and rock back and forth. The ape state made Custis feel alive and vivacious. At least, it used to. Custis fixed a smile. Now, a ticket is required, Mr. Akros. We must maintain the creature in the comfort he has grown accustomed to. He gestured to the sign, reading, One ticket equals now just twenty-five cents. Akros frowned, but dug around in his pocket with his free hand. He pulled out several coins and tumbled them into Custis's hand. Turning toward the ticket box, Custis counted two dollars and seventy-five cents. He dropped them all into the box, then tore off a ticket. There you are, sir. Hold on to that. This way, please. Custis led him to the big top. The wind moaned again, sounding even more like the whine of the undead ape. The hairs on the back of his neck tickled as he held the flat back enough to let Akros peer in. Now you, sir, asked about the history of this mysterious creature, Custis half-turned. Well, let us shine a candle onto that subject before we shine it upon the creature itself. For he loves the darkness. In darkness he was born, in darkness he perished, and in darkness he was reborn. I do not think he loves the darkness. Listen, pal, Custis said, his low voice nearly lost to the wind. Mr. Akros, this isn't how we do this in America. I talk, you, ooh, and ah. Custis bit his lip. His first mark in weeks, and he was admonishing him over an innocent question. He just paid you two seventy-five for a twenty-five-cent ticket, he imagined Rosie chiding him. Again, Mr. Custis, I apologize. Think nothing of it. Now, my mistake was in not making our purpose clear. I am not come here to just see the creature, as you call him. I am come to purchase him. Custis swallowed wrong and choked. The flap slipped from his grip. You want to buy it from me? 
Custis said, recovering. That is correct. We would like to make purchase of the ape. Numbers with dollar signs streaked through the business side of his mind, while his showman streak groaned at the prospect of surrendering the tenth wonder of the world. He listened for a sound, any sound, out of the big top. But the ape was silent. Custis stretched an arm toward his own tent. Shall we discuss this out of the cold? Acro stared as if he could peer through the closed flap and see the ape itself. Slowly, his lips curled, more a rictus than a smile, but he gave a curt nod that Custis took for assent. He led Akros to the other tent, no bigger than the cage where he kept the ape. The tent held a cot, a wood stove still slightly warm, a trunk, and a chair. Custis offered Akros the chair, then sat on the trunk. Now then, Mr. Akros, let us dis- Can I offer you some coffee? I'd have to make it, of course. He plucked the scorched kettle from the ground and sniffed at the contents, wincing at the wafts of day-old grounds. Akros shook his head. Thank you, no. My brother drank, but I did not. It's coffee, not liquor, Curtis nearly answered. I can respect a teetotaler, Mr. Akros. My own brother was one. He also died years ago, during the war. Akros watched him passively, neither nodding with understanding or offering belated condolences. Custis set the kettle down and let out a deflated breath. This man was about to solve his troubles, both money and monkey-wise. So you want to buy the prince from me? Confusion clouded Akros's face. That is the ape, yes? He is a prince? Yes, indeed, Custis turned his impresario grin back on. He's the prince of apes. I was not aware that apes had royalty. The reborn excitement drained from Custis's face. Well, you, that Kong in the movie, you know the movie, right? He was king, you follow, so I have the prince. Akros nodded in apparent understanding, but Custis did not feel reassured. Tell me, please, Mr. Custis, how is it you came to acquire this prince? Custis drew in a breath pregnant with showmanship. That, my friend, is a tale indeed. Now, my own role is a bit part, I must admit. A fellow in New York City brought him back from the deep, dark of Africa in the summer of 1932. It was from this fellow that I acquired the prince on the 5th of December, 1933. Before I came into his life, the great ape languished in obscurity, in darkness. I brought him into the light of day. This magnificent creature, this undead ape, this living beast with the unbeating heart, the prince met the world, or at least the adoring and willing folks of New York City, in the week between Christmas and New Year's Day, 1933. If you are any fan of the cinema, you will know that a certain movie premiered in March of that year, and thus the crowds grew 
thousands deep to see this wondrous being of mine. But this place is not the city. The expression on Akros's face was not disdain or cruelty, but simply factual. Memories Custis had buried about their abrupt departure clawed their way into his thoughts. That damn boy just had to be curious. Henry had discovered the kid's body when he went to check on the ape early one morning. Thankfully, the boy was just a skid row waif who wouldn't be missed. Henry helped Custis weigh down the corpse and dump it into the Hudson at midnight. How Custis got through the next day's performance, he never knew. Thank God Rosie never found out. Henry knew, though and reminded Custis that it was he who had failed to secure the cage the night before. It was Custis, stumbling drunk, who'd forgotten the key in the lock. The ape had never made any motion to harm him or Rosie, though it clearly disdained Henry, and that was probably just because he was French. Well, French and Congolese or Senegalese, but French enough, like the big game hunter who'd killed it. But now they were both gone. Henry and Rosie, and Custis was alone with the ape. The flap slipped its tie and wind pushed into the tent. Custis felt the zeal seep back through his body as if sparked like a fire. He hopped to his feet. Do you know what, Mr. Akros? It's time for you to see the magnificent prince himself. Custis grabbed a lantern and strode out, the last of the afternoon light glinting off the rear of Akros's car. Angled beside it, Custis's own travel trailer and cage sat more upright than he remembered. The wind carried a metallic ching that Custis slowed to locate. Akros nearly crashed into him. Custis stumbled, but Akros caught his arm, letting Custis regain his balance. The man's grip wasn't tight, but Custis felt the pressure from each of his fingers through his coat sleeve. He gave a thankful nod. Akros released him. Inside the big top, long shadows stretched toward the great cage from three rows of benches, their peeling red paint visible in the sweep of the lantern's light. The ape squatted in the far corner of the great cage, still, as if it were a statue, its dead eyes catching and keeping the light. The only sounds were the crackle of canvas and the scuffs of their feet across a floor of dead grass and spent sawdust. Custis hooked the lantern on a post, then waited until his eyes adjusted. He stepped around Akros to tie up the flap in a vain attempt to keep out the chill. When he turned, Akros stood as if mesmerized, an arm's length from the cage. Custis shifted his eyes from Akros to the ape. The ape's expression felt odd to him, different somehow. Sad, perhaps? A mournful moan slipped from the ape's unmoving lips. Custis rubbed his eye. It was either a trick of the light, or the ape was rocking with an anxious look in its purposeless eyes. The ape didn't look so great in the limited light, seemingly smaller than the half-ton it should have been, and no more than the six-and-a-half feet tall Custis had estimated when Darby, the man who'd sold him the ape, claimed it was over seven. Custis widened his eyes to see better. The ape's gray-streaked fur looked dull as a taxidermized trophy. Not that Custis had ever touched the ape. He'd been warned not to, and just months ago, he learned why. He is 
big, Akros whispered. Bigger than I imagined. Nine feet tall, that's the pitch. I think more like seven or eight. And he does not move of his own accord? Nah, not usually. Well, never that I've seen, except maybe rock a bit and moan occasionally. It does everything I command for a show, though, and that's when it counts. Akros nodded, and then muttered something that sounded like, Zonbi Gofkrilla. I must know his story. Akros faced Custis. Not your story. The wind blustered. The lantern swayed. Custis imagined a plaintive whine carried on the wind, like the sound he'd heard from the ape's cage when he'd seen Henry dying in the ape's embrace, his dusky skin looking pale as daylight. Of course, it wasn't Henry. Henry was gone, no more than bones scavenged at the bottom of Lake George. Custis shook off his daze. It was an accident, he reassured himself. A drunken tussle among the benches, the accidental tumble into the cage the French African had himself opened. When the crowds abandoned them and the money was low, that was not a good time to confront his employer demanding payment and threatening to tell Rosie about the boy in New York. Henry slipped as he tried to stand, his foot tapping the apes. That was all it took. Custis had told Rosie that Henry ran away. Custis shook off the memory and forced his attention back to the man in front of him. It was just a regular gorilla in Africa, from what I was told. Well, huge, bigger than any other ape anyone ever saw, but ordinary otherwise. The man I bought it from, Darby, he got the ape from a Frenchman called Henry. Henri. Well, names don't matter. A big game hunter he was. Lived his whole life in French West Africa. Heard about it from a couple of natives. Looking for the next trophy, he tracked the ape for weeks, months. Finally found it, but decided at the last moment not to shoot. Decided to capture it alive, bring it back here to exhibit. But, and this is what Darby told me, I don't know if it's true. The ape stared him down with big sad eyes and begged him, silently, I guess, to shoot it, to put it out of its misery, whatever misery that was. He paused and stared at Akros. The man's eyes glowed fiery in the lantern light. Through the howl of the wind, Custis thought he heard the bang of metal. He turned, but the ape was at the far end of the cage. Still or swaying, he could not tell. The door was locked, and the key was secure in his pocket. So, he did. And then the locals come running, their witch doctor screeching some native gibberish. Akros's face darkened but he said nothing. Custis thought he saw the man nod for him to go on. The Frenchman, he thought he had to fight his way out, but the witch doctor, he was calm then, almost joyful. He was interested only in the ape. Hauled the corpse off, the rest of the natives crying the whole time. Frenchman goes back to camp, on to kill the next big thing. Three days later, just as they're packing, here comes the natives with the prince ambling behind them, just like he is now, dead but alive. The witch doctor says to the big game hunter, he's your responsibility now, or something like that, and gives him some talisman or key to control the ape. Said you can't touch it if you don't have talisman key. I don't know. I got nothing like that from Darby. Just the ape and the cage. Then again, half the sideshow freaks Darby finds, he doesn't know half their story. 
For me, it, the ape, he listens to commands, does tricks when I order him to, really seemed to like Rosie, tolerated Henry until... Anyway, he was like a zombie, I guess, or a good dog. I almost called him Rover, but he's really the Prince of Apes. Custis caught a glint from the ape's eyes as if the light locked in its pupils shone back. The Prince in the Darkness, Henry called him. From outside the tent came the squeak of the decrepit sign welcoming the marks who never came anymore. Custis glanced at the tent wall, listening. Acro stepped toward him, taking back his attention. Mr. Custis, we are wanting your ape for a purpose. Akros looked from Custis to the ape. Perhaps that is the prince's desire as well. Custis drew back. Dead apes don't have desire. It doesn't have purpose. He rocked forward. What is it you want my ape for, really? A pensive gaze took over Akros's expression. The First World War swept in your United States at the end but was nothing more than a European conflict. There is another great war coming. Perhaps you have heard of the Nazi party of Germany. Yeah, that Hiller fellow and his goons. Adolf Hitler. Sorry, Mr. Akros, my brother died in France in the war fighting the Krauts and... Custis bit back a swell of emotion. He'd been of age to go too, but feigned a bad leg to get out of being drafted. He'd been sure his purpose wasn't dying on some other continent. He'd never been able to fulfill his desire for a sideshow of his own, if he had. Akros let out a breath of irritation. If you will, Mr. Custis, allow me to finish. I am answering your question. Custis coughed and looked away. Given the turmoil across the world, Akros continued his focus on the ape rather than Custis. The Second World War shall be far more devastating than the First. My brother and I, and our associates, with creatures such as the Prince, their security is no longer in their dispersion, but in their collection in a safe habitat. This ape is not some dog to perform for you, nor a beast to be feared and hunted but rather protected and cared for. Custis followed Akros's gaze to the ape and back to Akros. Or maybe commanded to fight Hitler and his krauts. The lantern's light flared across Akros's face, but his expression stayed grim. He tugged off his glove. We complete a contract, and then you will be free. I will get the money, and he will return with it for seeing the prince himself. Custis watched their right hands grip and shake mechanically. I will return with it, he corrected silently as he nodded, for buying the prince himself. Even the correct phrasing sounded awkward. Custis dismissed the thought as his business acumen sparked like a dying fire reviving. Akros glided out through the flaps, setting the shadows swaying. The poles creaked and the leaves scratched across the ground outside like the scruff of feet. A wistful whine filled the tent. Custis squinted toward the ape. The creature's eyes gleamed with reflected light, captivating him. Just like the look he had when he'd left Massachusetts to seek his fortune in New York City. The ape issued a mournful whine. 
just like Custis had when he regretted selling the family farm after his parents died following the stock market crash. His coat felt weighted with bricks. He'd miss the ape, miss the silent companionship the creature had provided these past two months. He breathed deeply. He'd take the money, buy a new tent, buy a new trick, find new marks. If there was a tenth wonder of the world, there had to be an eleventh. He wasn't a failure, despite his current circumstances. Caldwell was just one town in a state full of them. He cleared his throat. Hell, the country's full of towns. Full of towns? Custis startled. Acro stood just inside the entrance, clutching a satchel. His voice sounded thicker, deeper, as if the chill outside had congested him. The dim light made Akros appear a hand shorter, and his features more pudgy than sharp. Custis blinked. Even if the darkness was playing tricks on him, what did it matter? Life was about to get immeasurably better. Beyond Akros, even the trailer looked like it sat up a little straighter. Custis smiled. New York, the state, the country, the USA. Akros gaped at the ape as if seeing it for the first time. Custis looked over his shoulder to see the ape shifting restlessly, more active than he'd seen the creature outside of a performance. Akros cleared his throat, and Custis turned back in time to watch the man plunk the bag down on a bench, disturbing the dust. We have not talked about the price, but I think this is fair. Akros tugged off his right glove and slipped it under one of the satchel's handles. Custis's throat burned when he saw the man was missing his ring finger. Why hadn't he noticed that before? Then the packets of bills Akros revealed snatched his attention. This is one hundred thousand dollars American, Akros said. Custis's throat held back a bitter taste like he'd actually sipped the coffee in the kettle. He ran his tongue over his cracked lips, but as he started to respond, the ape whined again. Custis swallowed as if a rock were working its way down his gullet. The fondness he'd had for the ape restrained him. Custis sighed. Here was a man willing to take the burden off his shoulders, and he was hesitating? Times were better than they had been a few years ago, but they were still hard. Custis stared at the satchel. Akros was offering ten times the amount he'd paid in the first place. I'm not sure, Custis said. Behind him, the ape moaned again. Custis resisted looking. This is America, Mr. Custis. Everything is for sale. The words burned Custis like lightning and his mood turned. Maybe he didn't have to give the ape up. Maybe this was a sign from God that oppression was ending for him once and for all. Maybe there was a way he could keep the money and the ape and gain a car to whisk them out of this dread place. A damned rotten way, but maybe caging the prince had just bared his soul. He hoped Akros couldn't hear his heart beating up his ribcage. Let me show you one of his tricks, Mr. Akros, Custis said as the wind held its breath. He stepped back and unlocked the cage. Just do the deed, he commanded the ape silently. The door yawned open. The ape slouched in the center, its right hand rhythmically slapping its left breast as if trying to restart its still heart. No one missed away from the Bronx. No one missed Henry. Custis entered, then motioned for Akros to follow. The ape began to sway. Akros pushed past. 
He stretched his four-fingered hand toward the ape, fingers waggling as if in greeting. He stopped an arm's length away. Watching them, Custis nearly lost his nerve. Just take his money and let him keep the damn ape. Damn creature is nothing but a burden. His fingers twisted the key in his pocket. All right, Mr. Akros, let me show you what he can do. Akros stepped forward. His fingers brushed the ape's forearm before Custis could speak the command aloud. The ape screeched and lunged forward, flung its arms around Akros, squeezed. All Custis heard was a fading rattle from Akros. Then his body drooped, and the ape dropped him to the ground. Custis slammed the door shut and locked it. The ape threw back its head and roared. Then, quick as Custis could blink, the ape lulled as if it were sleeping. The same thing as happened after it killed Henry. Custis drifted to the bench and collapsed beside the satchel. The ape made a purring sound, at once relieved and regretful. It started rocking, eyes glinting when it bent towards Akros's body, and dull as death when it shifted backwards. After a time, Custis drew his pocket watch up and flinched. It was after midnight. The lantern had burned low, and in its dying light, he saw the ape had moved again. All right, then. It's you and me, kid. His throat was dry and his voice scratchy. Swallowing didn't help. The country's full of towns, and we've been here for far too long. We got a shiny new Plymouth to pull the trailer, too. He glanced at Akros's body. I gotta take care of something first. Custis made sure the cage was locked and the key in his pocket. He took the satchel to his tent and hid it in the trunk beneath his clothes. After fetching rope and oil, he ventured back to the big tent. He refilled the lantern, then turned to the cage. The ape sat beside the corpse, one fat hand pawing Akros's shoulder as if trying to rouse him. The ape's purr had turned disconsolate. Custis rubbed the tired from his eyes. Yeah, I regret it too. But was done was done. Breath on a knife's edge as the key jangled in the lock. Custis opened the door. Back! His voice was still dry as summer without rain. The ape shuffled to the back of the cage and settled in an odd pose. One leg bent up and the other tucked in. It rested one arm across its knee and leaned to the side, bracing itself with its other hand. Its gaze followed as Custis dragged the body out. Custis shoved the cage door closed with a foot. Stay, he said through heavy breaths. The ape's response was a low belch, like a cross between a pig and a frog. He paused outside, his body aching. It was midnight, and there were plenty of rocks to weigh down the body. By the time anyone came looking, he and the ape would be long gone. The wind rushed in his ears as he worked. He finished halfway to dawn. His nose ran, and the wind raged as he trudged back to the camp. He needed a cup of coffee before starting to pack the little he planned to take with him. He'd have to spend the money slowly, to keep down suspicion. Custis tripped as he entered the tent, but caught himself on the trunk. He glanced back. The satchel lay on the ground. Panic shaped his face as he tilted it upright. Empty. His heart froze as he plunged a hand into his pocket. The key wasn't there. Of course not. 
damned fool, he left it in the lock when he dragged out Akros's body. He scrambled to the big top and skidded to a stop. His gaze drew up the hill toward where the Plymouth should have been. The car was gone, and with it, the trailer and the travel cage. The wind groaned as Custis stumbled into the big tent. The cage door stood wide open, the key missing from the lock. The prince was gone. The ape stole the car, was his first thought, but that was patently ridiculous. He sank to the bench where the outline of the satchel remained marked in the dust. On the ground below, sitting atop the contract and the poster, lay a pair of right-handed gloves, one four-fingered and one five. Too late, it all made sense. Akros's faltering mix-ups of we and I, and the metallic clangs as a Romanian's partner, surely his not-so-dead brother, hooked Custis's trailer to their car. The physical differences he'd seen when Akros, or rather his brother, returned with the money. I will get the money, and he will return to see the prince himself, Akros had said, and actually meant it. Custis's face fell into his hands. Through clouded eyes, he spotted black pen script beside the printed words on the poster. He plucked the sheet from under the gloves and read it in the yellowed light. Mr. Custis, apologies for my sudden departure, but given the circumstances, I thought it appropriate. I am not sure of the mores of American business, but as we did not all sign the contract, I have not left the money. I think my brother would agree, even if only for your disrepute of Africans. With regard to my further action of offering the prince to come with me, be assured he will be well cared for and kept safely out of the Nazi's grasp. As well, the taking of one who is dead so he may live is fair exchange for the taking of one who was alive and causing him death. My brother may disagree, when he is alive again. With regard, George Akros, for myself, and Carol Akros. Custis slumped. Akros, George Akros, would by now be well along Route 9, heading north or south out of Caldwell. The ape in its travel cage, and the 100 G's that should have been Custis's beside him taking it back to Romania, or wherever, to fight Hitler. Leaving Custis alone in the darkness. Alive, but dead inside. The moan reaching his ears was his own. I was in a freak show once. That's where I met my late wife, Agatha. We worked up a duo act, where she would fire a series of ping-pong balls at me, and I'd catch them in my mouth. The details are better left to the imagination. As for how she lit them on fire, I'll never know, but her aim was incredible. I still have the scars. Our narrator this evening was Chris Law, who lives in Toronto and works as a voice actor, specializing in villainous types of all stripes. They live with their partner 
and two cats, which openly defy their supposed authority. They are best known for portraying the eldritch host of a weird fiction anthology podcast, something I appreciate. We might be related, who knows? There are many branches of our twisted family tree yet undiscovered. And now, friends, to send you off with one of my favorite toasts. It matters not if the wine glass is half empty or half full. Clearly, there's room for more. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 Non-Commercial Attribution No Derivatives License. Story copyrights remain with the authors. This episode was produced in March of 2022. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. I didn't like debating with the sword swallower at my old sideshow, but I have to admit, she made some fair points. <laughs>